Welcome to part two of the interview with Captain Thomas Govan on his experience in arguing before the U.S. Supreme Court in October 2018 in the case of Madison v. State of Alabama. If you didn't hear part one, please consider listening to the previous episode where we discuss an overview of the case, how Captain Govan became involved, and the preparation he took leading up to the day of oral argument. In this episode, we'll dive into his experience at the U.S. Supreme Court. Here's a highlight from this episode. There needs to be a balance between being firm in your foundational principles, but flexible in your approach of how you carry out those principles. That's the only way you're going to get better. You don't get better from going through easy things. You get better through facing adversity and learning how to overcome it. Welcome to the Air Force Judge Advocate General's Reporter Podcast, where we interview leaders, innovators, and influencers on the law, leadership, and best practices of the day. And now to your host from the Air Force Judge Advocate General School. Okay, so we've gotten through the briefs, (laughs) oral arguments, you're prepared. It's the week before the day you got to walk into the Supreme Court. I'm assuming there was a lot of other things, maybe last minute things you had to do to get ready. You go to Washington, D.C. Who went with you? What was that experience like? And maybe you can walk us through the morning of the day of oral argument. Sure. Uh, and I'll, I'll back up a little bit. Uh, and, and we went up, when I say we, myself and another colleague went up about a week before. The argument was on a Tuesday. I think we went up on a Wednesday to Washington, D.C. And um, we did some other, as I mentioned before, some final moot court sessions at a, at a law school and then another group of attorneys. Um, and and this, is, this is not just something that the, um, the state of Alabama can do. That This is a routine thing for all litigants who go before the Supreme Court. It's, just, it's, it's, it's wonderful that so many attorneys in the Washington, D.C. area are, are willing to give their time and volunteer. But um, it, was, it was a lot of fun but preparing that way and, and having the chance to really, again, like I mentioned before, dive into a, a case so deeply. This was a very challenging case. A, a capital case is a very serious matter. But it, it was, from, from the pure legal perspective, it was wonderful to spend that much time working hard on an important case. So we went up. We that the end of the week was when we finished our last rounds of oral argument, and then the, the weekend was spent just kind of prepping, doing some last minute refining of your argument. I'm not a guy. I try not to take a lot of notes up when you do an oral argument. You'll you'll see different theories on this. Some people will bring a binder of documents up to the to the lectern, and I try to have just one sheet of paper, maybe two, with some big bullet points on there that I might want to talk about. So. The, the weekend was spent maybe kind of refining that sheet and, and my cheat sheet for oral argument. And then I t- one of the best, piece of, best pieces of advice I got for, for arguing before the Supreme Court was from someone who had argued before. And he told me, hopefully your argument will not be the first one that week. Um, because he suggested to go and see an argument before your argument. And I think that's good for any litigant anywhere, you know, is to go check out, literally check out the courtroom, figure out where the bathroom is, what the setup is like, um, where people are going to sit. Uh, If you can, see a case before your case, uh, find out what the, you know, if you're in a new jurisdiction or something or you're in, in, in the Air Force too, you know, just to be able to know the judge that, that you're going to be in front of. But um, that's just kind of good preparation skills. But in this particular case, the Supreme Court 
building is just beautiful. It's an incredible building. It's the centerpiece of our judicial system. So there's kind of a, for for a citizen, it's it's awe-inspiring. For a lawyer, it's just, it's amazing. So this uh this this person told me to to go ahead and go sit through kind of get the awe factor out of it, but also see the surrounding and so the Monday before my argument I went to the Supreme Court and uh, was able to watch the arguments that occurred there and that was really helpful for me to just see what was going on there's quite a lot that goes on uh, you know there, obviously the litigants are there. Um, in the in the room, but there's um, seating. That, there's kind of separated seating. There's seating for for the attorneys who are arguing that day. There's also a special section of the room for members of the Supreme Court bar. There's public seating. Uh, there's there. This is our Supreme Court building. There's a lot of tourists and, and visitors to D.C. who just want to to see the the building. And so there's there's people who are coming in and out of the building just to look. Uh, so there's quite a bit of activity going on. But it was good to kind of get a sense of what was going on there. And so that Monday really didn't spend a lot of time. By that point, the argument was pretty wrapped up. And, and I mentioned before, not trying to get too tightly wound and overstrung. So we really didn't do a whole lot of work that day. It was more just kind of resting, preparing, and also seeing the argument before that Monday. As far as the morning of, uh, I don't know about you, but but anytime I go to court, I you know I'm not a big eater the, the morning before. Uh, it just there's a lot on my mind, and this particular day I, it was was no exception. But so I, I you know got up and kind of had a little bit of a breakfast, you know, watch the news, try to make it as much of a normal morning as possible. But uh, you know, one of the things I think you um, I think a natural anxiety anytime you're going to do something challenging going to court as a JAG. You know, someone told me one time, if you're not nervous going to court, you probably should be worried. No matter how simple the case or, or how confident you are, you need to be a little bit just ready to go and, and not to, to take anything for granted. And I certainly wasn't taking anything for granted in the Supreme Court. So um, how I cope with that was just to try to, to focus in on my strong points. Um, and this is this is more backing up into you know, just the general parts of preparing for the case, but going over the, the, my strongest points in my head and what I really, really wanted to get out. But so I had breakfast, took a cab ride over to, to the Supreme Court. It, it was fascinating. It was the beginning of the term. So when I pulled up to the Supreme Court, there was a line, a huge line outside of uh, people, just the public trying to get into the case. And because what happens is people just line up outside and there's a limited number of seats in the Supreme Court. And when they are filled up, that's all the people they can allow into the court. So there was a huge line to get in. Fortunately, there was a separate entrance for the attorneys who were arguing that day. And so I went into the Supreme Court and kind of uh, prepared that process. And uh, then the moment came where it was time to go in. And uh, so when you get into the Supreme Court room, there's on there's the podium. Uh, one of the unique things about the Supreme Court is how close the podium is to the bench where the justices are. It's it's unlike any other courtroom I've been in in that it's so close. In many courtrooms that you might be in in the JAG Corps or in the civilian world, if you're arguing from counsel table or from a podium, you're kind of way, in my experience, you're way back, you know, several 20, 30 feet away. Well, you're very close to the court in the Supreme Court, which I think kind of aids to the collegial conversational nature of arguments. To the right and to the left, there, there are seats for both the appellant and the appellee, and there's two rows on each side. They're symmetrical. The first table is for the person, the group that has the first argument, 
and behind them is is a is a table for the group of attorneys who has the second argument. So we were sitting at the second argument, uh, second table for the first argument. And once that argument was done, the attorneys quickly move out. The court doesn't recess; they they stay right there and call the second case. When they say call the case, they will the chief justice will call out the name of the case, the case number, and then say the name of the, the uh, counsel who's going to be arguing. And that's your call, your cue to get up and, and, and start the argument. So the moment comes, they call your case, and you are not the first to go, right? The opposing counsel went first. What's going through your mind at this point as you're listening to opposing counsel? That's a great question. You, you're trying to do several things. Um, one, you're trying to go through and listen to any anything new that has come up any points or, or ways that, that, that maybe weren't super clear in the brief that they're making a point now that you really need to address. Um, you're trying to analyze points that the opposing counsel made that you, you need to work into your response. And if so, how are you going to do that? So there's a lot going on in your mind during this point. Do I need to reorder some of the things I was planning on talking about? Um, do I need to say something differently? And, and when I say responding to what opposing counsel was saying, do I need to add that into a point I was going to already make, or do I need to create a whole new line or point of emphasis that I wasn't planning to do before? You also need to be listening to what the justices are saying, and this would be for any oral argument, but listening to the questions that the judge or justices are giving. And so I was sitting there listening to some of the questions from the justices and trying to get there, see if I could get a preview of what they were thinking about the case when they were questioning the opposing counsel who was arguing first. So just for our listeners, what were the main two arguments made by opposing counsel? Well, it was interesting. I mentioned there were two arguments, and the first issue was that big kind of threshold question about whether someone just remembering whether they committed a crime meant they could not be competent to be executed in the Eighth Amendment. On that first point, when they when the petitioner's counsel got up, they essentially agreed that simply not remembering whether you committed a crime is not dispositive under the Eighth Amendment as to whether you could be competent. So they, they essentially kind of conceded that point, which was the big legal, that was the, the issue of first impression that was really pending in our case. And so that was, that was a big point. And it kind of makes, you know, it makes sense that you can see a lot of reasons why that might not be the case. For example, there's a lot of defendants who never admit that they committed a crime. Um, so whether you remember something or not doesn't necessarily mean you don't understand why you're in the situation you're in. So that, w- that was a big point that came out in that argument. Petitioner's arguments really focused more on the second point that whether under the existing standards, Ford and Panetti, um, whether the fact that this Mr. Madison had vascular dementia would um, meant that he was incompetent to be executed. Again, at a point that we later, um, that we did not dispute, potentially someone, no matter what the disease they have, whether it's vascular dementia or some type of psychosis, that could cause someone to potentially not be competent to be executed in the Eighth Amendment. But in our case, uh, we believe that the evidence showed and what the, the state trial court found was that Mr. Madison's dementia did not rise to a level where he could not understand the reasons he was going to be executed. Um, we, and, and so that the argument from opposing counsel really focused on that second point and whether that those facts had been properly considered by the state court below. So as you're listening, was there anything that caught you off guard or surprised you either from opposing counsel or from the court? 
Well, um, the you know we, we were not exactly sure to what what their positions were going to be on the first two issues, what they were going to argue. So, kind of clarifying the first question was somewhat surprising, but we thought we had good arguments on that first issue anyway. So in that sense, that kind of changed what the focus of my argument was going to be. And because of the the issue not being as as, um, contested on the first issue, we realized that the questions we would get would probably be well, I, you know, sitting there thinking and, and before the time would probably be more related to the second issue. So opposing counsel finishes their um, their opening argument. It's your turn. What are you thinking at this point, and how did you determine where to start? I can remember this vividly when uh, opposing counsel sat down and the chief justice then looks at me and says, Mr. Govan, uh, that was uh, just that split second. You know, you kind of have the flashing before your eyes moment. And I remember thinking, I, I'm actually arguing before the Supreme Court. This is actually happening. But a neat thing happens, you know, once you stand up and you move to the podium, I think it's like any competitor in a sporting event or something like that. You just go back to your training and it's game time. And I imagine that someone playing a football game, whether they're playing before 10 people or 100,000, they're not going to know in the moment because they're, they're, they're just prepared and doing what they've been trained to do. And so thankfully, um, that kind of momentary uh, distraction passed away. And I just began my argument and attempted to begin to, to, with the introduction we had prepared. And hopefully I was going to get a chance to focus more in on on the second issue and really highlight the fact that that was the pertinent issue and why we thought that the the state trial court had correctly decided that issue, had considered the evidence of Mr. Madison's dementia, that had made good factual findings in its order uh, to support that. That that was an amazing moment uh, to to be able to get up and and start your argument. And, And I will say this, you know, when you're up there arguing, like I said before, thankfully, it it was, I won't say like it's any other argument because obviously it wasn't, but but you start to be able to converse and talk with the justices in a way like you would in any of your arguments. It's extremely difficult. It's a, it's a lot more challenging. But for me, at least, I was able to talk in the same manner that I would in, in most of my oral arguments. So are you saying that I think in this case, eight on one can be a little challenging, right? Because Justice Kavanaugh was not currently sitting on the bench that is correct, and that that makes this one kind of a unique scenario that uh, Justice Kavanaugh had not yet been confirmed. So obviously, there's nine justices on the Supreme Court now, but at the time we argued, there was just eight, and so there was an empty chair sitting there facing the the bench on my right. There was no chair there for for Justice Kavanaugh, and just as an aside, you know, for many of the listeners might know, but the the way the court is set up, it's all based on seniority. So Chief Justice Roberts was sitting directly in front of me, and then to his either side were the more senior justices like Justice Thomas and Justice Ginsburg, and it kind of fans out to the side. So, for example, Justice Gorsuch was sitting to my left, the farthest on the left, because he was the most recent justice who had been appointed, and then Justice Kavanaugh eventually sits on the far right. So from my review of the transcript of the oral argument and listening to um, some of the recording as well, it appeared to be pretty hot bench the, uh, that day. In fact, it looks as if you basically introduced yourself, started off with your, your first issue, didn't even get to your second, and were immediately um, questioned by the court. That's correct. <laughs> it was uh, it was a fairly hot bench that day, and sometimes people are stopped even faster than I was. But I was, you're right. I, I had uh, got up my first point and and was wasn't even able to get up my second point before a question came in, and, and that that can be tough, and, and where you are automatically kind of thrown off, 
And the, the question that comes may not be something that you were planning to talk about in that sequence. And uh, you mentioned it before, but it, but it's difficult eight different justices asking you questions. Um, it's difficult enough when you're dealing with one judge who's asking you questions in, in a trial court level case or, or an appeals court where there may be three or five judges or, or a different amount depending on what jurisdiction you're in. But but in this case, eight was very challenging. And one of the, the arts to advocacy is being able to uh, stay on track and to take the question that the answer, the question that the, the judge or justice is asking you address it, but also being able to work your way back to the point that you need to make or turn that question in being responsive to the justice's question, turn that into a response that's helpful for your point of view. You want to answer the question, but you can't just get dialed in and focused on that particular question. You have to get back to what your points are, um, what you want to get out, and also respond to what the other side argued that you're opposing counsel um, in the first argument. It, it, and it's a difficult skill to, to kind of develop. I think it, it just takes practice. And not to say I did that perfectly here, uh, because you look back and you think, I wish I had answered that question a little bit differently. You've got to take into account many layers and larger aspects to answering a question in the Supreme Court. You know, for example, a justice might ask you a question early in the argument, and then another question comes out later, and you never got a chance to really fully answer that first question. So in answering that second question, you want to answer the question, but if there's a way you can tie it back in to what you were arguing back before or to a strong point that you really want to emphasize, that may be a way for you to be a good advocate is to guide the court back into the discussion either about something that was occurring before um, or something you haven't had a chance to say yet. Because as as you noted from the transcript, questions in this case came fast and furious, and that's like in most cases. And so you may not be able to to get questions out, you know, the, the, way, the answers out the way you want. One thing that I find for, for, for me in arguing is be very detailed in response. Sometimes, as you know, in legal questions, it's complicated. There's not an easy answer. But in that setting, I think it's important to, you don't have a lot of time to set up the framework for why you're going to answer. You want to get the answer up front. So for me personally, I try, if I get a question from a judge, or justice, in, in, in particular the Supreme Court, is to give them a yes or no answer, if I can, right up front. So if I, there's a, a question, it's a 30-second question, it's, it's very challenging and layered, I want to tell the court yes or no or it depends, right? so they know the answer. And then what I like to try to do as well is say yes for two reasons or no for two reasons. That way, and then t- tell quickly what those two reasons are. So at least I've gotten the question out, the, the answer to the question out, the big points. Now, hopefully I'll have time to get into what those first and second reasons were for why the answer is yes or why the answer is no. Um, and at least the court knows, hey, he's got two points that he wants to talk about that highlights the court. Maybe they they either will give you time to respond that way or, or they'll come back and ask you again, hey, you know, counsel, you, you mentioned you had two points. We'd like to hear about your second point. Um, but I think that's an effective technique that I try to do. Uh, maybe, you know, uh, the best I could in this argument, but in particular in case like that, where you're going to get a lot of hot questions to highlight the question, the answer quickly to the question and tell the court 
why and give them a preview of, of the layers of, of your response if it's one of those situations where the, the answer is going to be kind of confusing and, and long-winded uh, to be as direct and to the point as possible, but allow the court the opportunity to come back and, and clarify based on the fact that you've asked kind of you've provided multiple answers to the question. So we could probably go on for hours um, on this topic, but how did you feel when you were done overall in your performance? Well, I, I was uh, I was kind of relieved to be done, but so many different emotions: relieved, thankful, uh, excited about the chance to do it. Like any, I think, good lawyer, you're already kind of second guessing, wondering what you could have done better. Curious about the outcome of the case. Quite frankly, I, I wish I could have done it again. I wish I could have got right back up and thought about it for a second and argued again because uh, it was it was so such an enjoyable experience. And looking back on after seeing the way the argument went out came down, I, I thought I maybe could have done it better. And um, as I mentioned, you know, the the questioning really came down more on the second issue, whether the petitioner's vascular dementia met the standard that had been announced in Ford and Panetti. Um, and so, obviously, in hindsight, I would love to have talked more about that particular question and paired more on, on that more factual, narrow question. At the end, it was just the argument's done. And at that point, I was able to actually enjoy the fact that I had just argued in the Supreme Court. Um, and that was just that was fantastic. Um, again, this was a very serious case that, that demanded a lot of work and, and it was serious um, consequences at issue. Um, but again, from the personal perspective, it was it was just such a treat to be able to argue in that court. And for our listeners, what was the ultimate result of the case? Sure. So as, as I mentioned, we um, the state won on the first issue, the kind of big issue, uh, the, the first impression about whether just memory of an event of, of committing a crime uh, prevented you from being executed in the Eighth Amendment. So that we won that legal issue. Um, the court ultimately decided on the second issue that it wasn't clear that there more fact-finding needed to be had on the issue of, of what evidence had been presented to the trial court on the vascular dementia and whether the court had considered that properly in its, in its order. We had, of course, argued at the argument that it had, that it had considered all that evidence and had uh, fully fleshed that out in its orders below. Uh, but the court disagreed with us, and so it was remanded back down for additional fact-finding to consider Mr. Madison's vascular dementia. And the, the case, is, as far as I know, is, is still pending in the um, below in the, in the lower state courts. So it was kind of a, a win, sort of a, a tie in the sense that the, the case was going to continue, but we we ultimately prevailed on the larger, the, when I say we, the state of Alabama did at the time, prevailed on the larger legal issue, um, but had to go back down, did not ultimately win the case because the case was remanded back down for additional fact-finding. So you've been uh, practicing law since uh, 2007 and came into the JAG Corps, I believe, in 2016. How have you been able to take this experience and perhaps leverage this either into the JAG Corps or vice versa, your, now your JAG experience where you've been a, a reserve JAG here for over about three years, into your uh, civilian practice? Well, right off the bat, I think we talked before about preparing for the argument and the rounds of moot court practice rounds that we did and, and the critiques we got from that. And this, the number one thing off the bat that I think works both, it's a two-way straight with my my JAG reserve career and with my civilian career is accepting criticism. That's something I think that the, for me, has been so beneficial to me personally through um, both the Air Force at large and the JAG Corps is being able to, to accept um, constructive criticism and to be able to learn what you can do and, and, and to do better. 
you know, one of the uh, one of the great things in the Air Force is uh, you're striving for excellence. And um, as an officer, you need to be a leader and to bring out those those leadership capabilities in whatever your career field is, and uh, particularly as JAGs, that, that's that's important uh, for us. And so um, one of the, the great things I, that has really helped me as a person, as, a, as an attorney, as a, um, a citizen, is the training back through officer training and, and both at, at the JAG school um, is, is critiquing yourself and that's the only way you're going to get better. You don't get better from going through easy things. You get better through facing adversity and learning how to overcome it. Just the the critiques you get um, through your um, office, this officer training and, and your, um, your training as a JAG, that process really, and I'll, I'll back up, I don't think a lot of people in their civilian worlds get that direct attention or at least get the attention and critiquing where the person who's giving you the critiquing wants you to succeed, wants you to get better. And so that that was such a huge accentuation for me when I went uh, joined the Air Force in 2016. And playing into my preparation for this argument, that was a huge piece of what we had to do, where we would get, I mentioned before, very direct feedback on, hey, don't do this in your argument. Do this, or I don't like what you're doing here. Again, it was not meant to insult somebody. We're all good attorneys in the room. We're just trying to get a little bit better at what we're doing and be that much more effective in our arguments. And so those things, I think, now uh, help me in my career, both as a JAG and as a, a civilian attorney, to look for someone to give you very pointed advice. It's so much easier to go through the day and just get our job done file everything, but it takes some effort to go out and find someone, a mentor or someone to look over your work or, or come with you to court and suggest ways to do things better. That takes effort. And it's also not sometimes pleasant, you know, but that's going to make you a better attorney. That's going to make you a better leader. And, and just in your personal life, it's going to make you a better uh, family member, a better friend, a better citizen to try to make yourself just better and, and recognize the ways you could do a, a particular job better, what you do well, but also what you could do better. Any final thought or takeaway and or any other maybe resources that you could provide for our listeners on your experience in arguing before the U.S. Supreme Court? Well, I will uh, I will just say, number one, if, you've, if you're an, an attorney, when you go to, to Washington, D.C., you should try to stop by. It's, it's an incredible court. Just the history of that building is amazing. Um, if you're lucky enough to be able to see an argument, please do. They're fantastic. Just the 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 level of knowledge that it's incredible that the breadth of cases that come before the Supreme Court and the the questions that you get, the the depth of research is incredible. Um, do that. Um, secondly, I, I would just say another big takeaway point that I think applies to advocacy in in front of the Supreme Court, but also just in life is, is balance. And you know what do I mean by that? Well, I think for me, in how I structure my arguments and how you can structure just any in any career for you have is there needs to be a balance between being firm in your foundational principles, but flexible in your approach of how you carry out those principles to where you're going to have a core. And this could apply to anything in the air in your Air Force career and your civilian career. Um, but you know, in the Air Force, we have core values that that we're going to follow and and a mission that we're going to follow. How we uh, execute that may depend on the situation we're in. And so in, in my argument in the Supreme Court, there were very specific key points we wanted to get out, the, the strongest points to our case, that you know, the case law was on our side, we believed, and, and the 
legislative history, the common law was on our side, um, but how we argued those points, the, the big foundational points of why we would win might need to change. And that's where all the moot courts came in, where our technique might be refined, how I said certain things might be refined, the order we would say certain things might be refined, and to not be married to a particular way you want to say something or, or order you want to say something because someone might have a better idea of how to do that. But you don't want to get too far on the changing things up scale and, and alter everything. You still, there, there's some, some main points you're going to make in your argument that aren't going to change. The important points to your case, you've got to find a way to get those out one way or the other. And so I think just in life too, as a, as a JAG, that's something we can apply to everything that we do, that there's going to be some foundational principles that we're going to that oversee everything we do. But the way we carry those out, the way we can be efficient in our mission can be different, that there can be varied approaches to doing that. Well, Captain Govan, thank you for coming in today. Fascinating discussion. Congratulations on uh, your success before the U.S. Supreme Court, and um, that'll be it for today. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure, and thank you for having me. That concludes our interview with Captain Thomas Govan on his experience in arguing before the U.S. Supreme Court. In summary for the case of Madison v. State of Alabama, the U.S. Supreme Court held in a 5-3 decision that the Eighth Amendment permits a state to execute a prisoner who no longer remembers the crime. However, the court held that a state cannot execute an individual who fails to rationally understand the reason for execution, whether that reason is due to psychosis or dementia, as is the case with Mr. Madison. Justice Kagan authored the court's majority opinion and was joined by Chief Justice Roberts and Justices Ginsburg, Breyer, and Sotomayor. The dissent included Justices Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch. Justice Kavanaugh had not yet taken the bench. The majority opinion followed the precedent set in the seminal cases of Ford v. Wainwright and Panetti v. Quarterman, where the court held the Eighth Amendment prohibits executing a prisoner who is deemed insane in that executing one who has no capacity to understand the crime or punishment simply offends humanity. My three key takeaways from the interview with Captain Govan include one, know your case and facts cold. There is no substitute for knowing your case and knowing it well whether that be for trial or appellate argument. That involves reviewing the entire record, the seminal cases, and other relevant cases and information. Then, spend some time thinking about your case. You likely won't have as much time to prepare as one would for a U.S. Supreme Court argument. However, take some time to think about questions such as, what are the weaknesses and strengths? What will opposing counsel likely do? What areas might you be willing to concede, if necessary? And where will you quote-unquote draw the line on your foundational arguments? Number two, be open to constructive feedback. This also involves working with a team, i.e. your co-counsel, case paralegal, supervisor, and others. Conduct a moot or mock argument and do so before those who are not as familiar with the case to expose yourself to a wider range of views. We traditionally call this a quote murder board and quote in preparation for trial at the base legal office. This is your opportunity to hone in on your case and improve upon it. And number three, strive for balance in your preparation. Balance means the ability to discern what feedback is fundamental to your case and argument versus what feedback is extraneous. This is both an art and a science. 
It requires knowing your case well and taking constructive feedback, but not overdoing it. As Captain Govin mentions, this requires to be firm in your foundational principles, but flexible in the approach of how you carry out those principles. It also means not second-guessing yourself on every issue. At some point, it's quote-unquote game time, and you will never know it all. But you should strive to reach a sense of familiarity and comfort in your case where you and your team feel adequately prepared. This is different for everyone. So part of finding that quote-unquote balance is getting to know what that means or is expected of for you. With that, thank you for listening to another podcast episode from the Air Force Judge Advocate General School. If you like this episode, please consider subscribing on iTunes and leaving a review. This helps us to grow an outreach for the Air Force and JAG Corps. We'll see you on the next episode. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Air Force Judge Advocate General's Reporter Podcast. You can find this episode, transcription, and show notes, along with others, at reporter.dodlive.mil. We welcome your feedback. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher and leave a review. This helps us grow, innovate, and develop an even better JAG Corps. Until next time. Nothing from this show or any others should be construed as legal advice. Please consult an attorney for any legal issue. Nothing from this show is endorsed by the federal government, Air Force, or any of its components. All content and opinions are those of our guests and hosts. Thank you.